Hello, my name is Aaron, and I'm in a circle in Hudson, and today we're reading James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, and be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad you're here with me, whether you're here in the West service or you're over in our East service or you're watching online. Thanks for being with us. Hey, a couple of things before I get started with the sermon today. Uh, one is I wanted to let you know that today is Jim College, who is our founding pastor. Uh, it's his birthday. So would you join me in just celebrating him? I don't even think he's in the room, but. Yeah, Jim is an incredible gift uh, to the church and to me uh, personally. I'm very, very thankful to know him and that we have him here uh, at the church. The second thing is I want to remind you that we're just a few weeks away from the Faith and Work Summit. I've been talking to you about this. This is something I'm involved in, something I'm very excited about. Listen, you spend a third of your life at work. For so many of us, the, the, the next step for our faith to really come alive, for it really to become something that has an impact on our lives, that shapes our lives, is we begin to connect it to our careers so whether you're at the tail end of your career, in the middle of it, or just starting out, I really want to ask you to come to this event. Your, your coming might be uh, beneficial to you, but it will definitely be beneficial to other people. I mean, part of this is getting you guys in a room and letting you meet other people who work in your field, develop relationships and networking opportunities, even potentially someone to eat lunch with, uh, wherever it is you might be in the area working and develop a, a friendship with a brother or sister in Christ who can push you to connect faith and work. Uh, registration is live. It's available in the Next Steps area and online. If you're watching online, you can register online. Uh, and I think it's open for another week or so. So don't miss your chance to sign up for this event and to be there. I think it's going to be an amazing opportunity. We have a great array of speakers. I hope I see you there. Hey, if you have a Bible, would you open it up to the book of James chapter 2? If you're watching online, just Google James uh, chapter 2 and pull it up. 
And as you're turning, let me just say I'm so excited for our sermon series in James. One of the things I, I love about James is he takes uh, these deep theological concepts and he makes them super practical, uh, connects them to the everyday areas of our lives. And I'm so excited about what God's going to do in our church this fall as we work through James. Uh, and I'm really excited about this morning's passage, which begins in verse 14. And if you're a note taker, let me hold out to you my outline uh, that I'm going to use to kind of guide our time together. If you're not a note taker, just kind of have these in your head. Three things, and they go like this. I want to talk about one, misunderstanding, two examples, and three places to go. Okay, one misunderstanding, two examples, and three places to go. All right, let's start with one misunderstanding. Uh, this is, believe it or not, a very controversial passage of Scripture. There are a lot of people who don't know what to do with James chapter 2, in particular, the second half of chapter 2, which we have in front of us this morning. There are a lot of people who don't like it, don't appreciate it, would just, ignore, would, would just wish to ignore it or pretend it isn't in the Bible. Even Martin Luther, a name you're probably familiar with, uh, did not like James as a book, and particularly this passage. He referred to James as an epistle of straw, which is an interesting name, except for what he meant was he wished he could burn it. Okay, So let's just say this. I'm really glad there was not Facebook or Twitter when Martin Luther was around. Okay, that would not have been good. Uh, he was prone to extreme opinions and analogies. But, but James chapter 2 is not appreciated, and it's very simple. You can look with me at James chapter 2, verse 17. This is why people don't like James. This is why they don't like this passage. The bedrock principle of Christianity is this, that we are justified before God, forgiven, accepted by God on the simple basis of faith in Christ and grace. Meaning we believe in Jesus and God extends grace and mercy to us. That is how we're forgiven. That is how we're accepted. That is what it means to be a Christian. In fact, you might argue that grace is the only thing really, or at least the main thing, that separates Christianity from other world religions. Because almost every religion out there is going to say, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be accepted, if you want to achieve, accomplish, you have to do things. And Christianity says, no, no, you just simply need to believe. Until you get to James chapter 2, verse 17. This is what James says in that verse. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You can see why Luther wasn't a fan. Because that verse seems to be saying the complete opposite of everything we believe as Christians. It, it seems to be the opposite of what we sing, of what we pray, of what we read, of what we preach, of what we celebrate. I mean, it is like a missile aimed at the foundation of Christianity. Faith without works is dead. It feels like what James is saying is that you can't just expect that faith will save you. It's not just believing in Jesus. You're also going to need to do some things. And that sounds a lot like every other religion in the world. It doesn't sound at all like Christianity. So what are we to do with James chapter 2, 
verse 17. Well, as my point indicates, I, I don't actually think James is disagreeing with the rest of the Bible. I, I don't think he's contradicting Paul or, or Jesus or others who wrote and talked about faith and how faith alone is what saves us. I think the reason why people wrestle with James is they misunderstand what exactly faith is. This is really important, especially in our culture, because our definition of faith culturally is not the same as the biblical definition of faith. So if you go on dictionary.com, for example, the second definition they'll give for faith is faith is belief in something without proof. Faith is belief in something without proof. Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, you think, yeah, that's exactly what faith is. And the way we perceive of faith is that there are certain things we can know, and then there are certain things we believe. Science, facts, data, experience, those are things we can know. And then there's a separate category of things we couldn't possibly know. We simply either choose to believe them or not. They have, we have kind of the arena of knowledge and then the arena of faith. Faith is all the things that we believe that we cannot prove. And that's why in our culture, faith is intensely private and personal. Because it's hard to argue. If somebody says, I believe in God and I think God only wears purple, which someone on Twitter is probably saying, how do you argue with that? How do you contradict that? How, how would you possibly mount an argument that would convince them? You can't. And so because of that, we tend to not want to talk about faith. It's personal, it's private, and you can't know it anyways. So what's the point in arguing about it? What's the point in talking about it? And so when we read James 2 and he says, you need faith, but faith and works, we assume he's saying you need two things. Because faith that is personal and private and largely the belief in things that you can't prove really doesn't have anything to do with works. It doesn't have anything to do with action. You and I can sit here believing whatever we want to believe without proof, and it isn't going to change anything about us. I heard a story once about a church that was building a building, and they were working with a contractor, and the reason why they had picked that contractor was because he was also a Christian. And it came out later that he had stolen money from them. He had lied about the project. And when they sat down with him and said, hey, wait a minute, we thought you were a Christian. His answer to them was, yes, on Sundays. But Monday through Saturday, I'm a businessman. Let me tell you, that guy would have benefited from the Faith and Work Summit. Not too late to register if you're listening. But what was he saying? He was saying, listen, that's my personal private faith in God. It doesn't have anything to do with how I live. And so when James says, not just faith, but also works, we assume he's adding a second thing. Not just a personal, private belief in God that can't be proven, but also doing good things. But here's the problem. That is not the biblical definition of faith. That is not what the Bible, the Bible does not mean belief in something you can't prove when it talks about faith. It has a totally different understanding of faith. In fact, I think it's so different, it's almost not even helpful to use the English word faith. 
Now, what I mean by that is if you read James in the original language, he is using the word for faith. But in American culture, that's come to mean something so different. A better English word would be trust. Trust. See, when the Bible talks about faith, it does not have in mind a belief in something you can't prove. Instead, the Bible has this in mind. Faith or trust is when you believe God will do what he says he will do today and tomorrow because of what he's done and who he's been in the past. Faith, trust, is choosing to believe God in the present and the future because of who he's been and what he's done in the past. It's a faith, it's a belief based on evidence. Let me point you to something the writer of Hebrews says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Listen to the definition of faith he gives. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Other English translations will say the evidence of things unseen, the the assurance of things unseen. See the writer says faith is when you have assurance that what you're hoping for will happen. Faith is when you have evidence of what you cannot see. Well, where does that assurance and evidence come from? It comes from trust. Let me give you an analogy. Some of you have asked, Zach, how's your golf game going? And the answer is, it's not. But I have started taking some lessons. In fact, I have a club here for me. By the way, funny story, little how the sausage gets made. I told this story in 830 service. I did not have a golf club. And Pastor Joe went and got a golf club because he loves props. And I said, this is my golf club. Where did you get it? And he said, I knew you would have them in your car. And when your boss says, I know you keep them in your car, that's a disconcerting, you know? But so I've been taking golf lessons. And, and, and you know, it's interesting when you go to golf lessons, uh, the beginning is all they do is tell you everything you do is wrong. Okay? Don't hold your feet like that. Don't hold the club. I'm not even going to try to hold the club. There are so many golfers at this church, I'll get 17 opinions on how I hold the club. I'm not falling for that, okay? But they'll say, here, here, is it how you put your feet? This is how you hold the club. This is how you swing it, right? And everything they tell you feels wrong, okay? They say, hold the club like this. You think, that's ridiculous. That's a terrible way to hold the club. Feels like my wrists are going to break. And then my golf coach will say, hit one. And then I'll hit it, and it's the best shot I've ever hit in my life. And he says, see? And I say, okay, all right. And so the next time he says, hold the club like this, I don't even fight it anymore, right? I just hold the club the way he says. I do my feet the way he says because I have seen in the past, this guy knows what he's talking about. So whatever he says about my feet or my hips or my shoulders or my hands or my posture, I listen to because I trust him. My experience with him in the past has shown me that whatever he says about my golf game in the future is gonna be for my good. I don't have faith in my golf coach. I don't have a personal, private belief in his wisdom. I have trust in my golf coach. Now, can you imagine if I went to a lesson and he said, Zach, can you hold, hold the club like this? And I looked at him and said, no, I don't think so. 
And he said, don't you, what do you, what do you mean? Don't you trust me? And I said, oh yeah, of course. I mean, of course. How could you even ask me that? Trust is a personal, private issue. You don't know what's going on in my heart. You don't know what's going on in my head. How do you know if I trust you? How dare you say that? Well, he would say, listen, man, if you trust me, you would do what I said. See, when I say faith without works is dead, that sounds like James is adding to it. But if I say trust without action is dead, you would say, that's absolutely right. Because anytime you trust anyone or anything, it results in behavior. James knows that. That's what he's arguing. That's what he's saying. God is not after a personal, private belief based on nothing. God wants you to trust him. James gives us, by the way, two examples to that end. That's my second point, two examples. He actually gives us four examples, two negative and two positive, two bad and to write. The bad ones are pretty easy. He says, listen, faith can't be just saying you believe that there's a God. Oh, I believe, of course, I believe there's a God. I mean, how did we get here? Where did we come from? You can't get something from nothing. There has to be a basis for morality. I believe there's a God. And James says, yeah, but so do demons. Can you imagine walking in heaven and you go, hey, buddy, how'd you get here? And he goes, oh, well, me and my previous career was a demon but I had a deeply held personal and private belief that there was a God. James says, of course not. That can't be what the Bible means when it says faith. And he says, but it's also a little bit like love. You can say that you love me or you can say that you love someone, but if you come across them and they're hungry and naked and you don't care for them, what does that mean? When I, when I read that verse, by the way, I can't help but thinking about going to grad school in the South, that what James is really saying is, if you see somebody who's hungry and naked and say, bless your heart, You haven't really loved them. Love always results in action. He says, it's not like those things at all. Instead, he says, it's kind of like these two people. And I love this. He gives us one woman and one man from the Old Testament. He says, no, no, no. Faith, trusting God, is like Rahab. Do you know her story? You can read about her in the book of Joshua. She's an amazing woman. You, you're going to really like her when you read her story. She's a Gentile. She's not Jewish. And she, leave, she lives in Jericho, which by the time we meet her is a couple of sentences away from being destroyed. Okay? And Joshua sends some spies into Jericho, and their job is to figure out how to destroy the city. That's, that's their job. And Rahab takes them in. She's also <coughs> a prostitute, so... She's got like a place you're welcome to stay. And so she's taking them in and she says to them, she says, listen, listen, I have heard about your God. Okay, I've heard. I've heard how you were enslaved. You were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. I've heard how he got you out about the plagues. I've heard about the Red Sea. I've heard about bread from heaven and water from a rock. And let me just tell you, we got nothing for that. So how do I get on his team? What she's saying is she's saying, hey, you know, I've been thinking and I've come to a deeply held personal and private belief based on nothing that your God is God. Absolutely not. She says, listen, God has done some pretty crazy things. I've, I've heard about them. I, I don't know if she was on Facebook or she had CNN or whatever, but she says, I, I, I've heard about what happened in Egypt and I, I have come to the belief based on evidence that if God can do that in the past, there's nothing that can stop him in the future. So how do I get on his team? 
And so they say to her, here's what you're going to do. You're going to hang some string out your window, and then when the earthquake comes, don't move. That is terrible advice. Right? When the walls start shaking and the ground starts crumbling, just don't go anywhere. But what were they saying to Rahab? Hey, Rahab, put your feet like this. Hold the club like this. The same God who's done those things, he says, if you will trust him, then just as he came through for us, he will come through for you. Rahab wasn't being called to a blind personal belief in nothing. They were saying, this God that you've heard about will also be for you. Trust him. And then sure enough, when the walls start shaking and they're blowing trumpets and everything, Rahab doesn't go anywhere. Because she trusts God. And he comes through for her. Then he tells a second story about a man named Abraham. You won't like him as much sometimes, but you can find his story in Genesis chapter 12. Highs and lows. But in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, start walking. I'm going to make you into a great family. And through your family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed which is an amazing thing to say because when he said it to Abraham, Abraham was 100 years old and he did not have a child. And God's saying, not only are you going to have a child in your old age, but that child is going to have children who have children who have children and you're going to become this great big family and I'm going to do this amazing thing, start walking. And then later, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, have their son, Isaac. And they name him Isaac, which means son of laughter, because Sarah laughed the first time she heard God's promise. And now her laughing has changed from scoffing at God to rejoicing over the goodness of God. He, he is literally, Isaac has literally brought laughter and joy into their lives. And then a few chapters later, God says, Abraham, I want you to take that son Isaac, go up the mountain, and I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him. Same thing, right? Hey, Abraham, I want you to take the club, put your feet like this, hold it like this, and swing the way I tell you. It's a terrible thing for God to ask. You have to read the story for more context. Spoiler alert, God comes through in the end. But in that moment, how does Abraham decide what he's going to do? Does Abraham say, well, I do have a deeply held private and personal belief based on nothing, so I guess I'll do this. No, no. What does Abraham have to draw from? He says, well, I used to be a hundred-year-old guy with no kid. Now I have a kid. Why? Because God made a promise and God kept a promise. And then he says, if Isaac dies, what happens to God's promise? That's over. Isaac doesn't have kids yet. His kids can't have kids. So, so the God who made a promise and kept his promise, if he's going to keep keeping his promises, has to keep Isaac alive. So I don't know what he's doing, but I do know what he has done. I don't know who he is right now, but I know who he has been. And I know you're thinking, Zach, you're reading way too much into that story. Except I'm not, because Abraham says to his servant at the bottom of the mountain, he says this. Remember, God has said, go up to the top of the mountain and kill Isaac. And Abraham says to his servant, you stay here. Me and Isaac will go up the mountain, and then me and Isaac will come back. The writer of Hebrews is so helpful again in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19. This is how he explains Abraham's logic. This is what he says. 
He, he is Abraham, he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, Abraham, when he says to the servant, me and Isaac are going up the mountain, and me and Isaac are coming back, he doesn't know if it's going to be Isaac who hasn't died, or if Isaac's going to have died and then come back to life. He just knows this. What do I know about God? He makes crazy promises, and he keeps them. So what I know about God from the past enables me to trust him in the future. Here's what I know. When I held the club the way he told me to, ha- to hold it, I hit it really well. The way he's telling me to hold it right now feels weird. But has he won my trust? You see, that's the question the Bible is asking. The Bible isn't challenging you to have some deeply held personal and private belief that is unassailable and unchallengeable and not rooted in anything. The Bible is God saying to us, do you trust me? And if Rahab leaves her apartment, the answer is no. And if Abraham refuses to go up the mountain, the answer is no. And if I won't hold the club the way he tells me to hold it, the answer is no. So here's the question. Do you trust God? James says, faith without works is dead. Trust without evidence isn't trust at all. Do you trust God? Do you trust him with your money? Do you trust him with your marriage, with your children, with your career, with your home, with your hopes, with your dreams, with your futures, with your past, with your guilt, with your shame? Do you trust him? You see, James is telling us that in the end, what saves us, what justifies us, what accepts us isn't a deeply held personal belief based in nothing. It's trust. That's what meant Abraham had faith. That's what Rahab meant when she had faith. Is that what you mean? By the way, I know that's super challenging, right? I know that. But see, it's the love of God that won't let you and I go to our deathbed without asking us, wait, wait, wait. Do you mean you have a deeply held personal and private belief based in nothing? Or do you mean you trust Because the first one won't be any good to you. It's the second one that matters. Which is why if you find yourself here going, well, I don't know. I don't know if I trust God that way. And and how could I ever trust God that way? I have three places to go. Final point. Three places to go. Three places to go. Number one, number one, the story of the Bible. Isn't it interesting that when James makes his point, he appeals to the Old Testament. I knew that was going to happen. He, may, he appeals to the Old Testament. He goes to Rahab. He goes to Abraham. He says, do you remember these stories? You know what he's saying? He's saying, do you remember when God told these two to hold the club a certain way? Do you remember? Do you remember what happened? Do you remember how crazy it was? I mean, do you remember how crazy it was and how everyone thought they were crazy and everyone thought they were being ridiculous? But then do you remember how God came through? Listen, the Bible, a story that takes place in human history. You can check it. You know what I mean? Check its history. Check its veracity. Check its facts. It happens in human history because God wants you to do that. Because God has proven through the centuries in making big, crazy promises and keeping them that he can be trusted. That's why it's so important you fill your hearts and minds with the stories of God's word. 
That's why parents and grandparents fill these children's minds and hearts with the stories of God's faithfulness, with the Rahabs and the Abrahams and the Joshuas and the Sarahs and so on and so forth. Build a resume for them with God that says the God of the Bible can be trusted so that in the crucial, pivotal moment of that child's life when God says to them, hold the club this way, handle money this way, treat your marriage this way, just trust me, they will say, I have a long history of people who have shown me the trustworthiness of God. The second place you can go, and the most important place, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus does this for us in two ways, by the way. The first way is what the writer of Hebrews means when he calls Jesus our older brother. I love that language. Jesus is our older brother. I don't know if you have older siblings, but older siblings provide this one really important function in the family. They go first. Here's what I mean by that. Every summer at the beginning of the summer, uh, our neighborhood opens the pool. And because we live in Northeast Ohio, it's been at that point like nine months since we were last at the pool. Which means my, my little kids are always terrified of the pool. I mean, they're good swimmers. They can swim, but it's been a while and they don't remember. And so they look at the pool as though it is an abyss. And and so what I have to do is I have to go get Deacon, my my oldest, my 14-year-old, and I have to say, Deacon, I want you to go to the deep end, which to my little kids looks as though it must be 1,000, you know, uh, uh, feet deep. It's really only 10, but to them it's bottomless. I said, Deacon, I want you to jump into the deep end. I want you to go to the bottom and swim back up. And he jumps in and they gasp. (gasps) And they're thinking, my dad just killed Deacon and I'm next. Right? And they think that the whole time until what? Until he pops up. And then when he pops up, he says to them, big smile on his face, it's awesome. The water feels great. See, you don't die. Our dad's not a psychopath. You can, you can trust him. It's okay. And then what happens? The little kids, in response to their older brother's courage and example, jump in after him. Jesus says to us, I know it's hard to trust God, so I'll tell you what, I'll go first. And he trusts God in everything in his life. In every moment, in every way, in every area, he trusts God. Even to the point of death, even when he's dying, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, I trust you. And he dies. And when he goes into the depths of death, we're like the little kids at the side of the pool going, (gasps) but on Easter Sunday, when he raises from the dead, he says to us, you see You see, you can trust him. But of course, more than that, Jesus comes to trust God in our place. So that on the cross, he becomes the embodiment of all the times I've not trusted God. Of all the lies I've believed about God and about myself. And he comes up under the judgment of God and he dies for those things. So that when he raises from the dead three days later, there can be no judgment, no condemnation, no anger. It's already been poured out on him. And God takes Jesus' lifetime of trusting him and he credits credits it to me so that I'm accepted by God on the basis of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then the Apostle Paul will say in Romans 8, if he wouldn't spare his own son, then how can we not also trust him in all things? Friends, think about the gospel that you believe. 
Do you really believe God wouldn't spare his own son just so he could ruin you financially? Just so that he could decimate your marriage, destroy your children? No, that's not who he is when he tells us, hold the club this way. Does he not have a track record of love and kindness and wisdom and provision? And then here's the third place you can go, the community of Christians. Let me ask for a little participation. How many of you here, Christians, would say, I have at least one story from my life that proves the faithfulness of God to me and to those I tell? Just would you keep it up just for a second? Look around. Look around. Okay, you put it down. Listen, these stories are waiting for you at men and women's Bible studies, at Regen, at Circles, at CLC, at all the things we do as a church, these stories are there to remind you of other people like you who have said, yeah, I read the Bible, and so I trusted him. I saw our older brother Jesus, so I trusted him, and here's how he came through. For me, those stories are a treasure for you to lean into to see that if that guy struggled with what I struggle with and has been set free, so also might I be as well. Faith is not a deeply held personal and private belief based in nothing. Faith is saying, God, because of who you have been and what you have done, I will trust what you've said you will do and who you will be because of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for passages like James 2. You love us too much to not challenge us when we say we believe because the absolute scariest Position to be in life is a person who says they believe when they really don't, who thinks they have hope when they really don't. Holy Spirit, would you lead us to see that even if we find ourselves in that terrifying place right now, all we have to do is grab hold of Jesus and say, because of Jesus, I trust you, God. In his name we pray, amen.